Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Well, we often focus on what's happening in markets on this podcast and it's always fun and it's always fascinating, but the volatility and all the ups and downs can be really unsettling if you are needing to live off your portfolio. And for a lot of us who are a bit younger and we're not retired yet, we have a salary, you're not thinking about this too much. But if you are retired or for some other reason have to live on your savings, you don't want the market to collapse when you no longer have another income. And this fear, which is very reasonable, can lead to some less than ideal behavior from retirees. There are strategies that can help, and today I'm joined by Roger Montgomery, who is well known as the founder and chief investment officer of Montgomery Investment Management, to talk about the ways you can set yourself up for a less stressful retirement. Roger, thanks so much for joining me. Great to be with you, Gemma. Always a pleasure to talk to you. So this one, it's a bit left field, but it's so important and I don't think it's discussed anywhere near enough. It's maybe familiar if you're a financial advisor or if you've seen a financial advisor, but for many others, we often talk about why investors, including retirees, need to be diversified. And we talk about why they need to be invested in equities and growth assets and why they shouldn't just be in cash and all those sorts of things. But we don't talk about what happens when you're drawing down on your portfolio And you're not just letting it run because it's one thing to be investing and not touching your money for the five to seven years we suggest for equities, 10 years maybe. But when you're drawing down, it's called sequencing risk. That's the technical term. You have a totally different set of risks in your portfolio. And that's a problem. Can you talk to us a bit about why it matters so much when you're retired or you're in this situation? Yep. So sequencing risk is the risk that you have a really unfavorable or adverse series of returns. In other words, you get big negative returns early in your retirement journey. And the problem with that is that you experience the reverse of what people know as dollar cost averaging. So dollar cost averaging is where you have a fixed amount of money that you're investing into the market each quarter or each month. And if the market falls because you're investing a fixed dollar amount, say $10,000 or $100,000, whatever it is, um, because when the market falls, you're buying more units at the cheaper price. And so you recover from losses much quicker. The danger with a an adverse experience early in your retirement journey, so this is what we're talking about with respect to sequencing risk, is that you're doing the reverse. You're not putting more money in, you're taking money out, maybe as a pension, for example. And so when the market falls, you're forced to sell more units to have your fixed dollar amount received and that you need for your expenses because they haven't, your expenses haven't fallen, your, your lifestyle hasn't changed adversely, uh, or the, that's the assumption. But then your portfolio has fallen, and now you have to sell more units. And what that means is that you've now got less units left to recover to where you were before. Um, so you're forced to sell more units simply because more units are required to meet the minimum pension payment obligation. And then after those units are sold, the remaining portfolio is smaller with fewer units. A greater burden is now effectively put on the remaining shares 
to recover the losses, which is really, really hard. And we saw this in the global financial crisis. And in fact, I was one of the people that made a submission um, to parliament uh, to suggest that they ease up or relax the minimum requirement for a pension because it was forcing people to sell too much of their portfolio at those low prices. So that's sequencing risk in a nutshell. Yeah, it's a really interesting one because we just I imagine the vast majority of people listening have never really thought about it. Uh, and you mentioned the GFC. I actually had a colleague who worked with me just prior to the GFC, had a good, very good-sized portfolio, let's be honest, about a million dollars, and he retired at that time when we didn't know how serious the GFC was going to be and he'd mm. been in financial planning and financial advice and investment markets for a long time. He knew what he was doing. And he was back at work within a year because his portfolio had gone from a million dollars on the 1st of January, let's say, to $600,000 on the 31st of December. They're not the correct date. Broadly speaking, that 12 months, he'd wiped out 40% of his portfolio. Mm. Yeah, and suddenly he went not from uncommon. going, yeah, I'm, I'm really comfortable that I'm going to be set for the rest of my life to, oh, my God, I don't have enough. And he came back to work and thankfully we were in a position to take him back. But it was mm. just such a dreadful situation for him. And the flip side of what we're talking about, this happens when you're in growth assets. If you have a term deposit, this is not an issue for you. Yeah. But then this is the concern. People go from having growth assets, they get to retirement, they're so concerned about sequencing risk, they tend to choose really defensive assets like yes. term deposits, which are really much more appealing now than they've been for a while. Can you talk to us about why that has its own risks? Of course. So the the obvious thing is that you miss out on growth, which is necessary. So, you know, I hear this all the time, Gemma, but people say to me, you know, I'm, I'm investing for my retirement. I turn 65 in five years time and I need to get to X before I retire. Well, actually, life doesn't end at 65. You know, your retirement life just begins and you, you potentially, if you're healthy and well, you could, you've got potentially 25 or 30 years of spending that you're going to have to fund from the date of retirement. So going defensive often um, is shooting yourself in the foot. So an example is uh, for today, um, uh, small caps are offering about 17% earnings growth over the next three years. Um, big caps are offering perhaps 1% or 2%, and the big caps are more expensive. Um, small companies, for example, in aggregate are actually trading at their lowest level compared to their earnings growth in the last 10 years, with the exception of um, COVID. So, you know, by by ignoring um, growth, by ignoring the possibility of growing your investments and putting them in riskier asset classes or what are perceived as riskier asset classes, um, you're missing out on that growth. So if, if you think, you know, I like to sometimes use the um, the analogy or a metaphor of, of a boat. So you think of the vehicle that you need to travel through your retirement as a boat. Um, you have to have a hull. You have to have the body of the boat to stay dry and to get to your destination. And investors usually do, as you pointed out in your question, investors usually do a pretty good job of securing a defensive and safe hull that keeps them dry and keeps them from sinking. But often they forget to invest in the engine. And even yachts, even if you're a sailing boat, you've got a small motor. Um, and that engine ensures that you stay on course uh, and ensures that whatever bottle of wine you can afford to drink today, you'll be able to afford to drink it in 10 years' time and in 20 years' time. So that's why you need to invest in growth as well as defence. But that doesn't really help because people are still going to ask the question, how much? 
do I put in growth? How much do I put in defensive? What's what's a strategy I can use for that? Yeah, it's such an interesting one. I laugh when you say the same bottle of wine. Uh, <laughs> my husband's taste seems to get more expensive over time. Uh, so by the time we're retired, we won't be able to afford it. But uh, <laughs> when we talk about this situation, and part of the reason it is such an issue is most investors, when they go into public offer super fund in particular, they kind of give you a balanced option, a growth option. Mm. It does give you all the different asset classes, but they're all bundled in together. And so like my colleague who saw his assets fall dramatically, he'd just chosen a growth portfolio and didn't actually know how much exposure he had to each thing uh, except at the macro level and then that didn't help him at all. Mm. What I love about this strategy we're about to discuss and it's been used in financial planning for many years. Mm. It's not new. It sounds really unsophisticated. Like that's what I love about it. <laughs> it sounds really unsophisticated, but it solves so many of these issues we're talking about. And there is actually really good evidence for it from an academic perspective. So mm. can you talk us through it? It's called the bucket strategy. I love that. Very sophisticated. How it's come about and how it helps you rather than just going into a single portfolio, how it helps you structure things so that you are not either missing out on all the growth you've talked about or wiping yourself out because you've had a bad year in the market. Yeah. So I like to call it the um, the bucket list for retirees. And it's a it's the 1985 brainchild of a US financial planner named Harold Evensky. And he is still in practice. He's still running a practice called Evensky and Cats. And it's a wealth management firm in the US. Uh, and he's also a retired professor of practice from Texas Tech University in their personal financial planning department. So the strategy, the bucket strategy that he came up with in 1985 is basically a blueprint for retirees to maximize their assets at the and, and give them a stable income while also helping to avoid panic selling, which is what we just described, you know, with growth assets, people are worried that um, they might have to sell to stay retired or they might have to go back to work. And if your retirement portfolio is entirely invested in those securities, then, you know, you experience what we described before, which was the the opposite of dollar cost averaging when prices fall. So the the bucket strategy is is very simple. You have three buckets. You have a short-term bucket, a medium-term bucket, and a long-term bucket. And here's the thing. the, the What's central to the bucket strategy and what's crucial is that you only have liquid funds that are dedicated to catering to your short-term living expenses for, say, two years, three years, four years in bucket one. So to work out how much to put in bucket one, you outline your projected annual expenditure. You know, what am I going to need? Um, you take out any deduction, you deduct any um, non-portfolio income, for example. You might be earning a pension. You might be getting a stipend from, you know, a long lost great aunt who's passed away. Um, you take that out and then that's what you, that's your income that you need. You, the residual figure is basically how much is required to be taken out of bucket one for the next two, three, or four years. So, um, and and if you you know if you're being conservative, you might say, okay, well, I'll, I'll have twice as much that I need for bucket one. So, bucket one is a cash bucket. You put cash. You have enough cash in there for one year's expenses, and then you might have term deposits that cascade. So they're maturing in one year and two years 
for the second and the third year um, in bucket one. And that's that bucket is for spending on those immediate needs um, for that period of time. Then you have a, you have the second bucket, which is a medium-term bucket. It's slightly less conservative than the first bucket, but it's more conservative than bucket three. And the idea of bucket two is that it, it covers five or more years of anticipated expenses but you emphasize income generation and income stability. So you might invest, for example, in um, infrastructure assets, private credit, fixed interest, or, or REITs, real estate investment trusts, or hybrid securities. It's about, you're not putting it into equities, this bucket, you're putting it into things that produce stable and attractive income. And I, I particularly like private credit as an emerging asset class for this particular bucket. Um, you know, we're aware of funds that are generating eight, nine, 10% income returns, paying monthly cash income, uh, you know, and have had no negative monthly experiences for five or six years, even seven years. So this is an asset class that's growing, but we won't talk about that today. And then you've got your third bucket. And that's the that's the extended horizon bucket. So, it's basically large and small capitalization equity funds. Um, you might have long short funds in there. You might have some private equity. Even um, you might have more private credit in there that's compounding the interest rather than paying out the interest. So there are your three buckets. Now we really haven't talked about the important what you do with these buckets. All we've talked about is where you allocate each bucket and roughly how much is in each bucket. Yes, but that in itself is pretty powerful, right? Is as I said, for when you go into, let's say you're approaching retirement and you're in one of Australia's biggest super funds, if you look at what they offer you, it will be either an asset class option or balanced or growth or whatever. The idea of allocating according to your needs is quite different. It's a different way of thinking about it. A point you're about to make or probably have made already, though, is it's not a set and forget. You know, those those balanced options and growth options, the work has all been done for you, which is great. There's a lot to be said for that. But in this one, you have to rebalance it regularly, right? Once you've pulled yes. a full year's worth of income out of that cash bucket, you are going to have to refill it or you'll end up eating into all of your other capital. How do you suggest people think about that? Yeah, okay. So, so every year, so you set a date and every year, you have to start with bucket one, having two to three or four or five years cash, call it two to four years cash in there for your two to four year needs. So the, the whole objective of this strategy is to start the year each year with enough money in bucket one to cover two to four years uh, expenses. Okay. Now, then you've got bucket two and bucket three. We've already talked about where they're allocated or what asset, what asset types are in there. You've got three scenarios that can occur with bucket two and three. At the end of the year, you're either going to have one up and one down. You're going to have both up or you're going to have both down. So here's what you do. If you look at looking at bucket two and bucket three and one is up and one is down, you take enough money out of the up bucket to top up bucket one so that you've got enough cash for that two to five years. Now, remember, it could be that you have both of them down, in which case you don't touch either because that's why we put two to five years or two to four years cash in bucket one. So if bucket two and three are both down, we don't touch them unless bucket one has less than two years cash. 
Now, if bucket one has less than two years cash, then you do withdraw an equal amount from both bucket two and bucket three, even though they're down. The other scenario is that both of them are up, in which case you take some of each uh, to top up bucket one. And that's what you do every single year. And that's the rebalancing strategy for what I call the bucket list for retirement. So it's a little bit more sophisticated than it sounds, and it requires a little bit more concentration and effort. I think what's most interesting about this is the average super fund is not set up for you to do this easily, although it Mm. is possible in a lot of them. Do you see this as being primarily beneficial for self-managed super funds or do you think it's something you can probably do yourself with a public offer fund? Yeah, and just in a general fund, yeah? Yeah, no. Well, you have to change out of that. You have to roll out of that fund and you have to subscribe to a service offered by the likes of um, a NetWealth or a Hub24, for example, um, they are now offering platforms for investors to be able to select the assets and the funds that they want to invest in and the direct shares they want to invest in through NAB Trade. And they can, uh, they can or are able to actually perform most of what a self-managed super fund investor can do without being in a self-managed super fund. They can still be in their employer's scheme but the, they're in a they're in a fund that their employer can uh, allocate to, but they can also uh, they also have the flexibility to choose their assets, and so um, you can't do it necessarily in a you know in a classic balanced fund or a growth fund. Um, uh, it's a little bit harder to do, so you would need to roll out and roll into one of these um, platforms that offers more flexibility or. Uh, being a self-managed super fund if you have enough assets to justify the fees that are associated with maintaining and auditing it. And you've got the time and the energy for the admin, uh, which is always the challenge. You know, it requires no time and energy to sit down and watch TV seven days a week, but you're not going to go very far doing that. So (laughs) you you can choose no energy and achieve nothing, or you can put in a little bit of effort and uh, you can have a great retirement. I think with this one, uh, and you're sort of alluding to it with the TV point, is that it does give you a far greater sense of control. And we talk about SMSFs being really appealing because of their control. You can control what you're invested in. That's Mm. one thing. But this is a real sense of control, as in I know that I've got enough money to cover my cash flow needs for the next couple of years, and then I can rebalance and so on. So it gives you a much greater sense of comfort and security that you've taken the steps you need to do, which is amazing, right? So I will say, uh, and I've mentioned before on this podcast, I've worked in financial advice for many years and I worked in an advisor's office for the first few years of my career, which was very helpful. You learn a lot. Uh, You learn a lot about what people do. And what we found was the vast majority of people would come to see us within 12 months of retirement, Hmm. which is not ideal if you don't already have a lot of money. Uh, If you're thinking about retirement in five to 10 years time, and you're not sure if you'll have enough, it's better to get some advice or just take some steps strategically 
early rather than going someone seeing someone at the last minute. Uh, that's always a little bit more difficult. But this was where an advisor was really helpful, right? They could do a lot of work for you here. The great Indeed. thing is now you've got the tools to be able to do it yourself if that's what you prefer. And obviously at NabTrade, the vast majority of people we work with like doing it themselves. If you'd prefer to get someone to do it for you, that's another option. Yeah. Look, Australians are, you know, Australians are very, very comfortable with do it yourself. And that's why Bunnings is so popular. Um <laughs> Uh, so, you know, so yeah, this is a strategy that, uh, that's been going as, a, as we said, right at the start since 1985, um, when it was created and first published, uh, and there's been a lot of research on it since, and it's served a lot of people well, um, since 1985. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's fabulous that you've written about it and it's not that it's not available to the general public, but it's just not something we talk about a lot. So mm. I love that we are talking about it. The reason that it can work, does work, is the allocation to specific asset classes for specific needs rather than this sort of bundled idea where you got a bit of everything and you're very well diversified but you're drawing down on all of it. This you're drawing down from different things at different times. Now, you've alluded to the different asset classes and how you would allocate to them. Do you want to give a bit more detail about that? Yeah. Um, look, I, I think particularly for bucket two, where we're focused on income and stability and covering, you know, five years of expenses, what we found is that, you know, some asset classes have let people down. For example, when inflation is high, when inflation, we know historically when inflation is above 4%, then bonds tend to be very highly correlated with shares. So people last year, for example, 2022 and 2021, I think, um, they found that the bond market, uh, well, last year, bonds and equities fell together. Um, you know, bonds didn't provide that support or that um, diversification benefit that everyone was expecting, and that was because inflation was high. And so an asset class that has long been the preserve of high net worth and ultra high net worth investors in Australia, sorry, in Europe and the United States is private credit. So banks in Australia, because of regulation after the global financial crisis globally, not just in Australia, have had to pull out of some lending. Um, um, it's too risky for them. It's too capital intensive and too labour intensive. And so we find that there is a sector of the economy that are underserved by traditional or conventional bank lending. Uh, and that's left a hole for non-bank lenders to fill the gap and provide that funding. Uh, and so funds are now being set up to allocate money to these originators, what we call originators, non-bank lenders. And they're in turn lending that money to corporates um, for a variety of things. It could be, for example, it could be a farmer who's uh, selling fruit and vegetables to Coles and Woolies uh, and Coles and Woolies don't pay them for six months, maybe nine months, uh, and they need the cash. And so what will happen is the money will be lent to that farmer by an originator in return for, you know, it might be a 10% return on an annualised basis. And uh, the farmer's happy to pay that because they're only borrowing the money for six months. Um, so they're only going to pay 5%, but they get the cash up front and they can go and grow their business. And so there's a, you know, there's a growing market for private credit and private debt in Australia. Uh, and we're going to hear a lot more about it as we see the number of people over the age of 65 double, and oh, sorry, the number of 65-year-olds double and the number of 85-year-olds triple. So we're going to find uh, a lot more conversations are going to be had about private credit as an asset class. And so it's going to grow in, in terms of its importance 
um, to the allocation. And I think it suits perfectly bucket two in our uh, bucket strategy. Yeah, I think it's really important that investors have a good range of choices, particularly in that bucket, as you say. I mean, most investors that we work with are very familiar with Australian equities. They're very familiar with international equities. They understand REITs and so on. So that, you know, they have good exposure, but in the defensive space, because it's been so rough for the last 10 plus years as rates fell to zero. It's, you know, a lot of them are not familiar with some of the instruments that are actually very effective in yeah. that defensive space and what they can do with them. And and if you're, if you're, you know, up until now, because private credit hasn't been a topic of conversation, hasn't been a, uh, a you know, there haven't been many funds that retail investors can invest in, um, you know, they, they've had to rely on equities, REITs, you know, those sorts of things that are exposed to the stock market for both bucket two and bucket three. And and what I'm suggesting is that for bucket three, that's where you want to put your equities. That's where you put your higher uh, volatility assets that are going to grow fast. You know, they're going to have good years and they're going, you're going to have, you know, in small caps, you're going to have a 30 or 40% up year. And you want that. You, you, we're not saying, we're not denying that. That goes into bucket three. That's going to be an essential way that investors are going to be able to afford that um, wine that they're drinking now in 10 and 15 years time. No, I love it. I think it allows people to be really thoughtful. And a lot of retirees would imagine that small caps are not for them anymore, even though they may have been very enthusiastic. That is very much a mistake. Yeah, so you get you get to have exposure to a whole range of things, but you're doing it in a really thoughtful and targeted and, way. So and he, I love the way it comes together. Gemma, really quickly, here's a really interesting fact. If we go back to the start of the century, so go back 25, 23 years, and we look at all the market falls where the market fell 20% or more, over the next 18 months after the 20% fall, on all four occasions, and we're carving out last year, so not including last year, there were four prior to last year. The market, the market recovered over the next eighteen months, and on a hundred percent of occasions, small companies beat big companies over the next eighteen months, and on a hundred percent of occasions, the median small cap fund manager beat the small cap index over the next eighteen months. So it's a hundred percent hit rate over the last twenty-three years coming out of a sell-off into a recovery. So the market recovered, smalls did better than bigs, and the uh, median small cap active manager beat the small cap index as well on 100% of occasions. So that's just something to keep in mind if you're wary about small caps. You know, there is evidence that they do very, very well, especially after a sell-off in the market and after fears of a recession. That's quite telling. I think also one that I probably should have mentioned at the beginning, there is very good academic research that talks about where you get your returns in your portfolio for retirement. So this would be superannuation money or 401ks in the US. Uh, And the work done was saying effectively that 10% of it is your contributions, Mm. 30% of your total return over the lifetime of your accumulation and drawdown. 30% is your returns during your working life. And they believe that 60% is your returns in retirement. There you go. But it's critical that you don't wipe yourself out the sequencing risk at the beginning or more to the point that the market doesn't wipe you out. Well, that's what the bucket strategy is for. That's what we're talking about. I absolutely love it. Roger, you've published this great paper and I'm grateful you have, and you've got lots of other fantastic insights and research for investors. Where do people go to find out more about you and what you're working on? 
So for the bucket strategy paper, if they just Google Roger Montgomery bucket strategy, it'll be at top of the list uh, on Google. We um, will put so, it on NabTrade also so they can Yeah, so it. Roger, oh, well, that's great. Um, Roger Montgomery bucket strategy. And then there's a whole bunch of information about small cap investing, um, private credit and so forth at rogermontgomery.com. Um, so you can subscribe for the locked content. Uh, that's where you go to find out all the information that we've been talking about today. Roger Montgomery from Montgomery Investment Management. Thank you so much for joining us today. A pleasure. Always great to talk to you, Gemma. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening also. As always, we love hearing from you. This was a topic that was suggested very recently, but it's come up multiple times, people talking about how they should be investing during retirement, what they should be thinking about. So we do take your questions seriously. We do think about them. Please just email us at yourwealthatnab.com.au and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.